Welcome back to part two of occupation. In this section, we'll talk about self-determination, um, but we're just going to bring it back to our conversation. If you have not listened to the first part, please go do that um, and then come back to this episode. This is part two. So our first question surrounding um, self-determination is how does nationalism function in the fight for self-determination and also how can it deter other um, marginalized groups within the uh, movement? Historically, since mm, 47, there's been a mass movement amongst Palestinians for self-determination and for their own state. And that's what that looks like has changed a lot um, through things like the failure of the Oslo peace process. And there's just it what that looks like today is very different to um, what it did 70 years ago or 60 years ago. Um, Something I mentioned um, in the first part of this podcast was like the symbolism of moving the Israeli embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Um, That really had an effect on a lot of Palestinians living there because Jerusalem is kind of what what the capital of Palestine would be or like is hoped to be um so by moving the embassy there was kind of a big sign and that was a pretty radical decision that had never so that obviously went under the Trump administration and like that had was a big big shift um in terms of like the Israeli embassy was always situated in Tel Aviv and so moving it there was caused um you know peaceful protests and also some more violent clashes um particularly at the border with Gaza um because people were angry because of what that meant and kind of like in terms of smack like kind of destroying hopes for a future state so I think in the context of Kashmir when you look at nationalism you can look at kind of two parts of it, uh, one from the Indian side and then kind of a Kashmiri ethnic identity that has long existed, the existence of India. So currently with the the setup of the government and this kind of a trend that I think exists in several different places across the world is, is kind of the right-wing ethno-nationalist government that exists in India at the moment. So it's a very pro-Hindu state, uh, attacking against minorities, and just to kind of highlight just how bad it really is, is the current Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, actually in from 2005 was banned from entering the United States. He's the only person to ever have been banned uh, from ent- banned entering the United States. And it wasn't until he became Prime Minister that he was allowed into the U.S. And so this kind of embodies just how, uh, you know, toxic the ideology and the practices of the current government of India is and why they've been able to uh, kind of garner support for the actions that they've currently committed as well as the policies that they're putting in place for Kashmir and and even within India there's kind of a resistance against this ethno-nationalism that has started to be kind of awoken to how serious the Kashmir issue is to within India. Um, To the second part of that is the kind of Kashmiri ethnic identity has long and this is kind of what drives the 
uh, Kashmiri will for self-determination. The Kashmiri ethnic identity has existed at least since the Persian Empire, which is over 2,000 years of, of documented history of, of a kind of a Kashmiri state, a Kashmiri area, a Kashmiri people, language, culture, all of that has existed, uh, whereas India itself didn't exist until 1947. And so the resistance against this uh, this the Indian state and the Indian national identity is something that has continued because the Kashmiri culture and, and language and identity is so embedded within the people and that kind of is greater than uh, religion um, and, and is something that unites Kashmiris as a whole. So I think that has kind of fueled the resistance whereas on the other hand the kind of ethno-nationalist uh, ideology of the government has allowed them to get away with the kind of human rights violations they have. Um, I would also like to add that, like, the concept of being Kashmiri has, goes beyond um, India and Pakistan. Like, before India, the concept of India and Pakistan were even created, there was the Kashmiri identity. And I really think it's important to um, situate a national identity as a colonial construct, and especially when you look at the construction of borders. Um, <clears throat> because before India, Pakistan... There were no borders. Like they were groups of people living together, just minding their own business. Um, they had their own ways of rule, of course. Um, but the I, the idea of like holding on to a um, to like a national identity is a really um, recent phenomenon, and that has erupted since um, that has really grown since 1940 since the 1940s specifically 1947 in South Asia and I think when where self-determination plays in this and I'm going to try and be as concise as possible is I think when you're trying to con to um, construct this national identity that doesn't leave much room for self-determination because you're so focused on like maintaining these colonial boundaries and this national identity that like you're losing the idea and the history that people existed before boundaries were constructed and that struggles for self-determination um, have been happening since um, since before the construction of India-Pakistan during um, British colonial rule. And um, that struggle for self-determination, the history behind it has been erased because it's so easy to just point to 1947 as like a turning point for everyone. And we're not, we're erasing the fact that like there were individual histories that, um, that were happening and um, it's it plays into like a broader erasure of indigenous people just trying to seek rights to their own land. So for self-determination Hong Kong, um, going let, let's talk about history of Hong Kong, right? So as I said before, Hong Kong was under 150 years of colonial era under uh, British colonialism. But when you look at China, specifically, you know, People Republics of China, um, ruling under the Communist Party, it has only existed for seventy years. On you know when Mao Zedong created the you know the party itself in China and drawing borders of what China, like as a national, as a national country would be, and the history of Hong Kong is really unique because it is under it was under British colonial 
um, rule. And it mostly consists of, again, like Han Chinese people from the China, um, a lot of history of flooding from uh, the, you know, the effects of opium war. And then um, when the cultural revolution of chi uh, mainland China is going on, when all these communist movements going on, people were flooding from China to um, come to Hong Kong to seek a different lifestyle like in, the, in this capitalist society. So then self-determination, the role self-determination plays in Hong Kong is kind of special in a way um, that it upholds this identity that British colonialism has created down the line for the past 150 years. So after, like, throughout these 150 years, the identities and the culture of, you know, being what it meant to be Han Chinese or whatever, like, it has been kind of erased and, like, it has kind of manifested this new identity of what it means to be a Hong Konger. And it's not necessarily, like, we're not necessarily talking about, um, you know, Hong Kong as in, like, indigeneity anymore because the region is so colonized, has been so um, mixed together with different kinds of people. There are also, um, it's, it's important to note also, um, during colonial era, they also brought in um, South Asian, actually, uh, from Pakistan and India to Hong Kong as, um, as police um, during the time, and now they're just like, you know, normal Hong Kong citizens. So then when you look at recently, there was a Muslim mos mosque in Hong Kong, which was um, sp uh, attacked by the police. Like, that was something that was really um, controversial around, you know, um, police attacking um, a mosque that is so sacred in Hong Kong. So, like, South Asian communities uh, that exist in Hong Kong and, like, all these, like, different kinds of people in Hong Kong created this like identity that's not really tied to indigeneity because of the structure of colonial structure for the past century and a half that changes this, um, you know, uh, changes this identity that we have. And it's just really complex issue to talk about because um, at that point it's about, it seems like it's more about like ideology of self-determination as in as in like you know creating a space where it's just like for hong kong or for like the kind of like the leftover of uh destruction that has kind of like the leftover of destruction that british colonialism has left for us and also chinese colonial has colonialism has left for us and then creating our own space to exist in rather than fitting back into you know what the chinese government Chinese Communist Party want us to fit into the mold of whatever they want as like a nat more national border of like China itself or even uh, and this is like really different from a lot of regions that or places that we talk about because it's just like um, at a really special situation of being such a capitalist city with all these establishments from all these places, you know, when um, U.S. has so, so many corporations established in Hong Kong and things like that. So Hong Kong identity is really ambiguous and really complex. It's not tied to indigeneity and it um, exists in the sense of like w when we have to look at history and things like that. So, um, yeah. So I guess another thing that I want to talk about is um, kind of how this identity plays out um, internationally, right? So another thing that I think makes Hong Kong so unique is that 
since it is so capitalist and so many corporation is established in Hong Kong, it plays a big role in like the international economy, especially when the U.S.-China trade war is going on. So then sometimes the Hong Kong identity is more treated as like an economic playground, right? So then like you see um, the first people who speak out against humanitarian crisis in Hong Kong and the U.S. is actually the Republicans are... Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz were the first people who spoke out against um, the humanitarian crisis, where at the same time when that happened, the Sudanese revolution is also happening. So here are the questions, like, why are they only speaking, of, speaking up against Hong Kong, not, you know, about Sudan? Like, they stayed completely silent against it. And it also can tie back to that capitalist structure that British brought to Hong Kong that made this kind of weird, complex, like, identity that's not really tied to anything but more of like the um legacy the destructive legacy of colonialism structures so yeah so i guess within these structures that these places exist in is self-determination possible plausible um seeable in the future i think it's really difficult to tell at this point I personally wouldn't say I see a future of a Palestinian state um, because of many reasons. Where we're at today is like the expansion of Israeli settlements into the West Bank and in and around Palestinian neighborhoods is so intricate and so like these are people's lives. These are like on both ends it's like it's not it's just so complex that it's it can't just simply be like split up and divided into two states and that's I think something that a lot of people would agree um with me on I think self-determination determination now looks like equal human rights um and that's all that we can like kind of keep organizing and advocating for at this point. I think very similar in, in terms of Kashmir, that the reason that the, this move was so significant within India is because the article that uh, kind of kept the exclusive right to own land within Kashmir for Kashmiris, which had been imprinted like in the Indian constitution, was revoked by this government. And it was done in a, in a very kind of sneaky way I guess so it wasn't it was within the constitution so it should have been almost impossible for it to be removed uh, but the government found a loophole and a way to do it and the reason it's significant is because India has you know been in direct contact with with Israel and, and they're very close allies with Israel and they have very similar tactics um, in terms of ending you know the capability of self-determination so a hope for Kashmiri Muslims who were occupied or Kashmiris within uh, India who were occupied and, and who wanted to kind of be given the right to self-determination from India was that if it was just Kashmiris who owned land within Kashmir, the census or the plebiscite that was promised by the UN still had the possibility of happening. So there still could be a possibility that there's a plebiscite and Kashmiris get to decide where they want to go if they want their own independent state, if they want to be a part of Pakistan, if they want to be a part of India. At the end of the day, they could decide. But the Indian government has promised one resettlement camps for outside populations from Kashmiris. And so they've already set up these camps within uh, Kashmir. And, and at, to add, that's to add on to the, the already violence that exists. So in the past, um, the military had set up their own camps and taken away land and, and, and uh, done things specifically for the military. But now it's 
even greater of a threat in, in terms of the government promising to settle in non-Kashmiri populations. And this obviously ruins the capability of there being a plebiscite within the region. And so that's a huge concern for, for Kashmiris at the moment. It kind of was why this this specific move was so significant. It kind of ended that, like, you know, uh, it felt like Kashmiris were under siege, but now it feels more like it's direct promise of ethnic cleansing and, and removing the, uh, the native population and, and resettling it with a population that India can control and, and they don't have to worry about any kind of um, efforts for self-determination. And, and that's what makes that so scary. I personally think it should be easy for, for self-determination to occur, but because the, of the powers that are at play and, and their their kind of strategic interests, it becomes very difficult. The, the, I think the only way that you can see self-determination for Kashmiris is if they're put at the forefront of negotiations about the region. So if negotiations between, negotiations between India and Pakistan, dialogues on the interna international stage, all of these need to have kind of a Kashmiri representation there. Um, because right now the threat is that Kashmiris will lose their land and uh, will be kind of forced out and that self-determination won't, won't be able to happen. Um, I would also like to add that I think this is me strict, speaking strictly for myself that Kashmiri's struggle for self-determination is inherently tied to Kashmiri's fight to um, for their right to exist and um, it's because genocide is not only like the murder and resettlement of people it's the erasure of culture it's the erasure of erasure of history and I think someone um told me this the other day that to exist as a marginalized identity is your way of resisting. To engage in your cultural practices and to be in community with other people who you share a history with is resisting because your very existence is political and um, you're basically marked from birth. And I think um, it's really important to really encompass the cultural aspect of what um, of what being Kashmiri stands for because we're not just a a political tool for India to lay claim to um, our land it's more of well I can't claim the land um, people who live in Kashmir it's their land um, there is a long history there is culture there is community there is language that is very distinct to Kashmir, and engaging in that is also can be seen as resistance, um, which also plays into self-determination. And then quickly, just to add to that, I think uh, another thing that I heard that I think makes a very clear point about the issue that I think sometimes get, gets misunderstood, it's that Kashmiris aren't fighting for self-determination because they're being murdered and killed and the mass human rights violations that exist against them currently. These human rights violations are existing because of their struggle for self-determination. And so just because those human rights violations might go away in the future, at once they, you know, let's say India is able to change the demographics of the region, cause there to be peace, that doesn't mean that the essential fight for self-determination goes away. These things are happening because Kashmiris want self-determination. I think self-determination is... Um, really unique in Hong Kong because now you see people who are uh, waving, you know, U.S. flags and um, British colonial flags on the street. Like that's like some people. For some people, that's their way of seeking self determination of Hong Kong, which I don't agree with. 
because like you know some people are uh, asking U.S. for help when U.S. is not um, nece- it's not necessarily um, you know uh, good like when you look at U.S. and China like when people are looking at U.S. for help like they are thinking that U.S. is the good guy and China is the bad guy and it's just like this distinct difference between U.S. and China uh, between good and bad when it's not necessarily like that so like that's something that people are, some people in Hong Kong are doing that I don't agree with, but also like that's their, that's some of their, like some of some people's way of seeking self-determination. But to me, um, what self-determination looks like, I would also want to um, refer back to the six demands that Hong Kong protesters have. And this is um, the complete withdrawal of the extradition bill with, which happened, but there's also, um, there's also an establishment of an uh, independent commission to uh, investigate the police brutality, brutality and also drop all the charges of re- arrested protesters as well as um, uh, dis- recall the riot claim that happened um, that would put protester in jail for 10 years above. And also, um, this is the most impor- important one relating to self-determination is uh, genuine universal suffrage as well as disbandment of the police force right now. So the last two is really crucial to self-determination because right now a lot of tactics um, with increasing influence of the Communist Party of China, they want to um, control what politics would look like in terms of, you know, uh, uh, like basically like idea cleansing of what what people want to have uh, and make them, you know, adopt into the way of, you know, um, communist, uh, communist China and having that, you know, universal suffrage is what people want to look like as like Hong Kong itself as self-determination. And some people might say that, oh, is this Hong Kong, spe- uh, especially, you know, pro-China people uh, a lot of times have this rhetoric of saying, oh, universal suffrage is that saying that Hong Kong wants to have um, its own independence from China and things like that. Um, so not necessary that like we would want to have independent independence from China, but rather have an autonomous rule in Hong Kong itself, where we have the way of ways of living in the, the past years of destructive structure that has passed on to us, where we want to have our own region of people of our own ruling our society that is best adapted to our practices, for example, like, um, you know, having having such a great disparity of wealth um, under capitalism, how do we address that to lower income families and lower income people in Hong Kong? And, you know, that's one of the really, um, that's one of the really um, grassroots issues, but China has been imposing these uh, policies that have been marginalize all these like lower class people who are making them like you know suffer more under this class structure and also like a lot of other things that china has done to impose on this like um dangerous like destruction of policy in in hong kong and i think a lot of hong kong people just want our own government ruled by our own people who um kind of um kind of kind of makes policy that is catered to what's best fit for hong kong instead of getting told by the Chinese communist government of their um, regime or their um, 
agenda, they push their push of author authoritarian agenda of uh, their thought cleansing of um, what communis communism looks like to them and things like that. So I think it's more about, you know, just having universal suffrage and having them determine what Hong Kong should look like in the future more so than um, gaining independence completely from China, I would say. So what it, what it concretely looks like in the future, I can't really tell you, but I would just say that um, I would just say that Hong Kongers are just fighting for the six demands that they have right now, and um, we'll proceed to see what's next step when we possibly like obtain those six demands or not. So like it's just like a really uncertain situation right now. So first off, I want to thank you guys so much for coming and speaking. Um, I know it takes a lot of energy and mental energy and emotional energy to be able to come here and like share everything you're feeling and hopefully our listeners will appreciate that as much too the biggest thing that came out to me was like existence as resistance and I just want to say that like on this team as Michigan in color we're standing in solidarity with all of you um and we hope that this is able to reach as many people who are maybe unclear about situations or are maybe just not reading the right media that is addressing what needs to be addressed properly. So if anyone's interested in learning more or they're interested in getting involved on campus, uh, Stand with Kashmir is the organization that uh, I work with and I'm the Michigan head of Stand with Kashmir. Our website is standwithkashmir.org. Uh, Kashmir is spelled K-A-S-H-M-I-R. And we have a U of M, camp uh, U of M chapter that... Uh, is kind of working on political advocacy as well as awareness. And if you want to learn more and get involved, you can email me at safwan at umich.edu, S-A-F-W-A-A-N at umich.edu. And if you're interested in learning more about Palestinian issues, um, how you can get involved or learn more on campus, um, the I'm a part of Students Allied for Freedom and Equality, which advocates for... Palestine here um, on U of M's campus. We do teach-ins um, throughout the semester on different issues. And um, yeah, you can also be a part of the org. Yeah, so we have a Facebook page. Um, so it's SAFE in all caps, S-A-F-E. Thank you. Um, and with that, we are going to streamline into our outro, but thank you all so much for coming. We really, really appreciate it. Um, and don't forget to pass the mic. <laughs>